Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning. I want to call you Lab Muffin, but I know your name's Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Either is fine. Where did the name Lab Muffin come from? That's a good question. Um, To be honest, it was like a throwaway name that I thought up. So I was doing my PhD and I thought I should start a blog. And then I spent maybe six months just going, I should start a blog. I should start a blog. And then I realized I would just never do it unless I just forced myself to just start. Yeah. Um, so I was just like, well, I can't think of a name. So I'll just pick a name. This will do. Um, it's nice and Googleable, at least. And then I can change it later. And then I just never got around to changing it. <laughs> it's definitely catchy and it's better than like Skin Queen, which there must be millions of them somewhere yeah, across the yeah. world. It's a lot more Googleable, which I think is being yeah. handy. And I'm assuming you're a fan of muffins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you like labs. Well, I, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for our listeners who who maybe haven't come across you, but I find mm. that hard to believe if you're on Instagram because your account is massive and anyone who's sort of in the aesthetic industry would have probably come across your work. So tell us about what your background was and how did you get interested in skin and how have you generated that into what you're doing now? So back when I was doing my PhD, which was in medicinal and supramolecular chemistry. Which is what? Uh, <laughs> in good English? Question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so medicinal chemistry is pretty much looking at how molecules interact with the body. So we would make molecules, we'd test them, and then based on that feedback, we'd make other molecules. So that was the idea. Um, supramolecular chemistry is the interaction between molecules that aren't reacting. So things like binding to receptors. And now it applies really nicely into skincare because that's also how skincare products are held right. together. Um, you mix the ingredients and they interact in a way and they turn into a product. Right. Um, so I was doing my PhD in that and I started getting into skincare because I was buying skincare. And because I was doing my PhD, I didn't have that much money. <laughs> so I would really, really carefully select the products I wanted to buy. And I would do way too much research. And as I was doing that, I realized there were things about the products that I was curious about that I couldn't find answers to. It would be like, this reduces wrinkles. And I would be like, but how? Start looking into that, realized I had to go into the peer-reviewed literature, had to look up textbooks. And I realized other people must have also been wondering the same thing and they wouldn't have access to all of this stuff. So I started writing it up also because I knew I would forget the next week and I'd have to find all this information again. And it took so long. At the same time, I was also in a number of Facebook groups where people would ask me questions um, about like, I heard that sodium laurel sulfate is bad for my hair. Is it bad for my hair? Should I check out all my shampoos? And I would write up like long Facebook comments and it was like, I'm putting all this energy into writing a comment to one person. I may as well put it up so that later on I can just copy paste it or direct them to this. Yeah. Clever. Very clever. Yeah. Well, it's it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, even for someone like myself or Jake who's, you know, got a medical degree, looking at all this stuff is really confusing. You look at the back of a a skincare product and you look at all these ingredients and then you've, you know, you've got the marketing machine behind all these companies as well that can push the envelope, 
I think, in a lot of ways in terms of the claims that they can make. Um, so I can't imagine how confusing it would be for someone that has no knowledge of this industry at all trying to understand what all these things mean when they're looking at a package or a product. Yeah. So I think for the regular consumer, it is kind of a minefield because on the one hand, I think companies, they try to tell you how their thing works, but you're not sure if they're overselling it. They also tend to undersell it sometimes as well because technically it's a cosmetic. If they oversell it, it becomes a drug and then they get slapped by the TGA or FDA depending on where they are. What I find funny about you know, skincare or hair products, whatever, they'll do an advert and then there'll be like a small print at the bottom saying, this worked on 15 people. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll be like, that's the smallest, stupidest study I've ever seen for a global product that you're marketing to reduce wrinkles. It seems weird. Yeah. So yeah, coming from a science or medical background, like we know the more people there are in a study, the better. And for drugs, we see like thousands and thousands of people per study. And then we come to cosmetics and there's usually, usually less than 15. 15 is actually like decent. (laughs) Usually it's like 10. Um, Yeah. So I think one of the big issues is this drug versus cosmetic thing, because if a cosmetic company can base their claims on a small number, why would they do more? Whereas for drugs, there's a much higher standard. And so they actually want to make sure it works. So for cosmetics, you're not actually meant to claim it reduces wrinkles. You're meant to claim, you're allowed to claim appearance-based benefits, like it reduces the appearance of wrinkles. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, it gets even shiftier because usually the question they ask is, Um, they'll ask the 15 people, did you see a reduction in your wrinkles? Yes or no? (laughs) And then so, of course, most people might be like, oh, I'm not sure. And they'd be like, but yes or no? And then they would say yes. And then they could say 90% of our sample size said that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how you can take figures and numbers and present them in ways to get the message across that you want to get across. It's it's kind of sneaky, isn't it? And, And yeah. And especially for skincare products that aren't drugs, they're, I guess their bar for what they need to comply with is so much lower and people mm. are just getting tricked all the time. Yeah, definitely. And why did you want to go into your field when you finished high school? Like what made you go into supramolecular and molecular and medicinal <laughs> biology? Yeah, so... Or when chemistry, I was, should I say? <laughs> it overlaps a lot, actually. Um, yeah, so... When I was in high school, I was actually more into arts, to be honest. Like I was really into history. I really loved English, creative writing. And I actually started doing um, an after-school chemistry course that was free at my school. I went to a really nerdy school. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so my best friend went, so I went. And then we sat there and ate afternoon tea. It was more social than anything. And then I ended up learning some chemistry. And I ended up, because I started that, I think, in year eight. Um, By the time I got to year 11, I was pretty good at it because I've been through, basically they were teaching us um, half of first year uni chemistry in this class. And um, by that time I got into chemistry Olympiad, um, the national one. And then it turns out if you do that, then when you get to uni, you can skip first year chemistry because you've learned it. Um, So I was like, oh, I don't know what I want to do in um, uni. I've got the marks for good stuff. And they were, they're always like, you're, you're wasting your marks if you don't do medicine or law. Yeah. So I did combine law and I was like, well, what can I combine it with? I could do arts, but being Asian, my parents were like, 
don't do art. <laughs> <laughs> you will have no job. Um, so I picked science. Not, not, and now I realise there's not much of a science industry in Australia. But It's the same for Jewish people, isn't yeah, it? Doctor or lawyer, otherwise, yeah, <laughs> you're out of the family. <laughs> yeah. Well, I started with doctor. Like I applied for medicine, but I was, um, I was really mean to my parents. I was like, I'm going to apply for this new thing that this was like Sydney Uni just opened up to this thing with like 10 spots and basically you had to get a UAI of a hundred to get in. And I was like, this is the only medical degree I'll do. I got just below that. So <laughs> I didn't get in. I knew I wouldn't get in. Um, yeah. So that was my first choice. So my second choice was law. So my parents were slightly disappointed. And then at the end of my, um, my undergrad, I was like, I'm going to drop law and do, do honors instead. And my parents were let down again. And then I was like, well, actually, I'm not going to become an academic. I'm going to, um, I actually went into tutoring after that. Um, so I was head of chemistry at a big tutoring college. And again, so I let them down in stages. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, in terms of your social media, and we'll, mm. we'll get back to the technical side of skincare and so on in a minute, but just interested to understand your journey because you've got such a huge account. You put up mm. so much content. I was having a look through your Instagram page a few weeks ago when we were like, before we had to reschedule when Jake's family got ill and looking at all the amazing things that you do. So how did that sort of transpire? How did you become like this huge account that people go to for, as a resource for knowledge? And then how much time do you actually put into your account? Because it looks like you put in a ton of work. So I started with my blog in 2011 and then Instagram started getting big in 2013. And it was, so I started Instagram to promote my blog and then I realized Instagram was kind of becoming its own thing. So I started putting a little bit more energy into that. And it was probably around the time I started doing myth versus truth posts. I think that's a really attractive format because people like to find out new things. Like it's a really good way of finding out new information because you're like, well, I did believe this myth but it's not. And then they'll click through and look through and learn something. I think one of the truths with social media really on Instagram, at least is you want to give people a reason to click follow. So when I was just promoting my blog, people maybe followed to subscribe and see new updates, but they can also do that through a mailing list. So if they were already on my mailing list, there wasn't much point. Um, so yeah, if you have something that makes people want to click follow, if they feel like they're gaining free information off it, they'll follow. And so, yeah, I started doing a lot more of those myth versus truth posts because I realized it was taking off. And yeah, that that was pretty much, that still is my bread and butter for that. Yeah. Um, in terms of how much time. Yeah. <laughs> um, it looks like a lot, right? Yeah. So, I mean... Honestly, I didn't really spend that much time on it until I started doing YouTube. YouTube is the biggest time drain. Um, Instagram, I think it takes like maybe half an hour to an hour per post. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a lot of work. And like, how do I put this? Is that your job now? Or Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was mostly the YouTube that kicked that off because each YouTube video for me takes 20 to 40 hours. Yeah. Yeah, which, and if I'm trying to put out one every week or two, then obviously that is a full-time job. Yeah. I mean, David and I just doing the podcast, this is sort of morphed into kind of fun and a hobby to, okay, this is kind of a more regular thing. People are liking it to, okay, six hours minimum per episode, building a studio. And it just, you know, it, I understand the work goes behind your work. So yeah, yeah it's mental. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. All, all the planning and editing. And uh, yeah, I think people see a finished product and don't appreciate how much time it takes 
to sort of construct those things mm. and make them engaging and you have to keep it different all the time and, and keep your thing. It's like having your own little business really, mm. isn't it? I mean, we are, oh gosh, it's something that we always seem to be struggling with is how to, you know, be more relevant on social media. And you've got, you got a lot of boxes you need to tick these days. Mm. Yeah. How do you do your research into what you think is going to be, you know, trending and interesting and a bit quirky, a bit different? Like wh- where are you doing your own research or are you just sort of, you know, picking up vibes from Instagram? I think a lot of it is kind of picking up vibes. So um, I have enough followers now that they'll ask me questions. um, And out of those, I can just pick and choose. So that gives me an idea of what might be relevant. Um, One thing that I can't do as much anymore is back in the day, brands would send me press releases. And so I pick stuff up there. But now I think they realize it's a bit of a liability to send me their (laughs) press releases. In case you rip it to pieces. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyone that's got a large account you know, when you put yourself out there, you've always got the risk of detractors or people that don't agree with what you're saying. How do you deal with that? Because, you know, you've got a lot of followers. I'm assuming there's going to be a percentage of people that just, you know, don't agree with everything that you say. Um, Definitely. I think some of it comes from when I was doing law, actually. Um, So when you do law, um, when you construct a legal argument, you start with your strongest argument and then you have fallback arguments. And so you learn to construct one. And then (laughs) if that one fails, you go straight to the next one, even if it completely contradicts your first one. Um, I think a bit of that sort of training really helps because basically I construct an argument that is like, there are so many citations and references and it's so solid. And I think of anything that people might challenge as well. And I try to like um, preemptively also debunk that because I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the um, my teaching background as well, because like you anticipate what the students are going to ask. And then because a lot of students are really shy as well, they tend not to ask. So you kind of have to like jump into their brains and go, what is the obvious question here? And then try to cover all your bases. Yeah, because every person that writes a comment, there's probably others that have thought but haven't actually put something down. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you find choosing to engage with those people is, is of benefit rather than just ignoring them? Because I know some people's strategy might be, look, you know, if you start engaging with, with people that are negative or don't agree with what you're saying, you can end up in this really, you know, non-constructive dark place where, you know, things start to, <laughs> you know, on the, the keyboard warrior world that we live in these days. The crazy trolls come out. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think if they have a point, yep. I'll try to engage and try to at least say that's interesting. I'll I'll look more into this. Yeah. But obviously there's people who just are in bad faith. They'll just be like, oh, your your face is ugly. Why are you talking about beauty? That sort of thing. Uh-huh. And in which case it's just block. either, yeah, yep. block or delete. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's whether or not it's like it comes from a genuine place. That's yeah. where I choose. 100%. Now, in terms of skincare itself, as we sort of alluded to earlier in the chat, a lot of people are confused by it. Why do you think that skincare still, with all of this information and knowledge and accounts like yours out there, people are still so miffed and confused by it all? I think a lot of it comes from what we were saying before, um, the lack of evidence for things. There's just not that much incentive financially for companies to do that much research. And even if they do do all the research, there's not much incentive for them to show it publicly because if you can't sell it as a drug and if the regulators don't require you to show this evidence, then why show it? All you're doing is um, giving it to your competitors. So I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, I think also it is complex because, yeah, the fact that it's not regulated as a drug means they can't say certain things. Mm. And so at the, it's kind of like a conflict Brands both want to oversell their products and undersell them. They want to oversell them so that 
to the extent where consumers assume things. Um, But they also need to undersell it so it doesn't fall into the drug category, which happens all the time. So in America, the really big brands get warning letters all the time from the FDA because they are overstepping that boundary. So it's like a weird balance. And because of that weird balance, there's a lot of stuff that's just hidden Interesting. But then why as a company would you want to put out a product that you want to sell and make a profit on if you're not confident that it's actually going to do anything? It's weird. It is weird, yeah. (laughs) I think, yeah, the big companies tend to do a lot of research and all of that stays very hidden. So um, I went to the Procter & Gamble Research Centre in um, Singapore, the Innovation Centre, hundreds of scientists, amazing labs, all of the research and they publish only a tiny fraction of that. So they do actually publish peer-reviewed articles um, and yeah, they've done so much research that they hide. But I think also they don't release very exciting products because they also have the marketing side where they don't want to take massive risks because they're such a big company, they're going to do everything at scale. Um, So I think there's a bit of that going on. They have the research, they know how to make an amazing product, but they also want to make a product that has as little side effects as possible because otherwise there'll be all the complaints. They want to make something that will definitely sell, something that tests well with focus groups. Yeah. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think the most common skincare misconceptions are that you come across from your listeners and your experience? I think now that I'm so niche, my audience is like the the smarter people, the more clued in, um, more interested people in skincare. I think with the wider population, I think it's probably um, natural is better than um, synthetic. Yeah. Um, Another one that's been coming up a lot is clean beauty. So people want to find clean products that don't have so-called toxins, which isn't really a thing because, I mean, one of the most one of the most effective things we have in skincare is Botox, yeah. <laughs> which is... It's great an, stuff. Mm. Yeah, an incredible toxin. Um, yeah, I think those are probably the biggest ones. Yeah. Let's talk about um, sunscreen because I know that you've dedicated a big section um, on your social media to the myths surrounding sunscreen. Mm. So do you want to just take us through sort of what, what those misconceptions are and just, I guess, a basic 101 understanding of, how, of sort of how sunscreen works and what your thoughts and, and sort of recommendations are? So with sunscreen, I think some of the big myths are chemical and physical sunscreens work in different ways. Chemical sunscreens absorb UV and turn it into heat. Physical sunscreens scatter and reflect UV, but that's not actually entirely true. Physical sunscreens actually mostly absorb UV and turn it into heat and they only reflect and scatter a small amount. Um, So this, the reason, it, it sounds like such a technical myth that no one, like it doesn't really have a real practical impact, but it actually does because then on top of that, people have all these other misconceptions. Like you have to, because chemical sunscreens absorb, you have to apply them before physical sunscreens. They have to absorb into skin. I think it's the word absorb. Um, Chemical sunscreens produce more heat, which triggers other things. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of myths around that, but yeah, chemical and physical sunscreens are largely the same. The real difference is just which sunscreens work on your skin. And you should be able to tell that. Like, you should be able to tell whether or not it's irritating on your skin. Mm. So, yeah, chemical, physical sunscreens, it doesn't even matter which one you use. Just pick a sunscreen that works for your skin that you enjoy using and use a lot of it. In terms of quantity, um, 
I think the official Australian recommendation, it's so confusing because different countries have different recommendations for quantity. I believe the Australian one is half a teaspoon for your face, neck and ears. Um, might be one teaspoon. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it depends how big your face is, right? Yeah, true. <laughs> Child, adult. Yeah. Yeah, etc. But um, yeah, it's one of those ones where we, we just get so many questions about that, don't we? Yeah, we do. We the physical, the chemical, you know, zinc. Is mm. it going to get into the bloodstream? Mm. You know, how often do you need to reapply? Then you've got all the the sort of... Waterproofing. Confu- yeah, confusing <laughs> things about SPF. Sweating. Yeah, mm. so, you know, you've got yeah. SPF 50 now and SPF 30 and it sounds like there's a big difference, but really the difference isn't as big as what those numbers would, would sort of lead you to believe. So, yeah, it's super confusing still. Yeah, so with the bloodstream... Um, Chemical sunscreens have been detected, some chemical sunscreens have been detected in the bloodstream, but the quantity seems to be safe. Um, So there was a big story earlier last year where um, the FDA had done extra studies on and they found that the chemical sunscreens were absorbing into the bloodstream and this was massive news. Um, What's the chemical that makes that so sort of alarming or is it? um, Honestly, it's not that alarming because the EU has known this for ages. This was taken, I think the main reason is the FDA is really behind on all of their regulations. Um, So at that point, I think the sunscreen monograph hadn't really changed since the 1970s. Right. Um, And they always just assumed that things would not penetrate, even though there were studies showing it penetrated since like the 90s. Mm. Um, And so they suddenly... Now that they've done the study, they've decided to recognise that and they published that. Um, but the EU regulates differently. The EU regulates based on all of the evidence. So the EU has been taking that into account already and they've ended up with the same limits on sunscreens as the US. So really, um, based on the current evidence, they're like they're still safe. Yeah. Um, it's just the FDA is slow and just woke up. Um, so it became news. Yes, exactly. Because they found out more recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for any idiots like me that are wondering, what is a sunscreen monograph? Could you please just, <laughs> just let oh, us know it's, what that um, is? It's just the US's um, sunscreen regulations. Yeah, they're called monographs. And what, what are they sort of based on? Like how do they sort of, how do they come up with this, this monograph? Um, so this was just back in the 1970s. Basically, they were just like, well, it seems like UV is a thing. <laughs> we yeah. should protect against UV. And so like, yeah, the monograph just covers things like um, what ingredients you're allowed in a sunscreen, what percentages you're allowed, um, what you can claim, stuff like that. Are there any particular nasties, if you want to put it in, the, in those terms, that you as a molecular scientist would be <laughs> worried about in a sunscreen? Um. So with nasties, um, I think one of the things with all ingredients is the dose makes the poison. Um, You need to have a certain amount to have an effect. And then generally, the more you have, the bigger the effect. Usually it's a linear relationship. Um, Yeah, the... Yeah, the more you have, the bigger the effect. But we also have different individual susceptibilities. So some people are allergic to a particular ingredient, in which case that would definitely be a nasty for them at a lower concentration than someone who doesn't have that allergy. So yeah, it's really personal in terms of which ones are bad and good. Um, I think one of the most um, common allergens and irritants in sunscreen is probably oxybenzone. Um, That also has the biggest hormonal effect. So I think that's the closest we have to a nasty in sunscreens. Um, Even with that, oxybenzone has been used for decades and there's been no firm link to anything. Um, I think 
the closest there's been is like a microscopic change in a hormone that's been detected um, with no actual macroscopic like obvious change in the person. Um, so I think that would be the closest to a nausea, but then everything else is below that at the limit. So there are some things where if you use a sunscreen the wrong way, obviously that's not been tested for. So if you decide to drink sunscreen, for example, um, that's probably not safe. But if you use it as intended, um, then it should be fine. What are your thoughts on this narrative around a lot of products and skincares that we're putting on having an effect on sort of, as you, you sort of alluded to hormones, like endocrine mm. disruptors. So, mm. you know, causing things like increased level of estrogen or affecting testosterone in, I guess, particularly in, in males. Have you seen any sort of evidence, even if it's anecdotal, that would sort of give people reason to be really alarmed by this kind of stuff? I think, I think the most compelling evidence is still anecdotal evidence, I right. think. So um, I think there were a couple of cases where people who use talc um, on their genitals got ovarian cancer. Um, from the evidence, it doesn't look likely, but of course, if you have enough people using talc, some of those people are, were going to get ovarian cancer anyway. And it looks like that is mostly what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, science is always evolving, I'm sure at some point we'll find out that there is something we're using that will have an effect. But I think personal care products, you put them on your skin and skin is generally a good barrier. I think there are a lot of other products that are going to have a bigger effect. So plastics, for example, where we have plastics that used to have bisphenol A leaching into our food and then us eating it, Um, flame retardants and furniture, stuff like that, I think will have a bigger effect than personal care. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize, well, maybe a lot of people listening to this too, because I think our audience is pretty educated, but like, I guess that the wider, the wider audience or the the general public might not understand that, you know, when you heat, reheat your food, like in a container, if you get like a takeaway and you reheat it in one of those plastic containers in the Mm. microwave, that's like leaching chemicals into your food, things like water bottles as well, if you leave them Mm. in the sun. I mean, have you sort of looked into that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, not in a lot of detail because I feel like it's not really in my field as much. Um, But yeah, I believe there's been a lot more regulations around that. But I I think it depends on the country as well. Um, I think the US tends to be a little bit more of a um, Wild West sort of country (laughs) in those terms. So I think the safest thing usually to do is just to follow what the EU does because the EU tends to be a bit more cautious. Um, in terms of personal care, there isn't that much difference between the EU and everywhere else. So I think that tends to be safe. Do you find that the TGA, which is our FDA or uh, CE kind of approval, uh, do they tend to just follow suit from what other countries are doing? Or are there any specifics where they're very different? They tend to just follow other countries. Um We largely follow what the EU does, but I think the biggest difference is sunscreen um, because obviously Australia has a big um, skin cancer risk, whereas in the EU, um, in some countries I've been told, you can't even buy sunscreen unless in summer, like they literally take them off the shelves and then put them back on for summer. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? Wow. We, yeah. we just go in and we have like a giant bottle of Coles or Woolworth sunscreen for $6. Um, <laughs> whereas there, it's like a niche product that you only wear to the beach. So yeah, we have a lot of regulations around sunscreen that are a lot stricter. Um, and I think that's great. And it still means that our sunscreens are so cheap compared to other countries. So I think that's, yeah, really fantastic. 
Um, just back onto sunscreen for a mm. second because we sort of went back there. When it comes to physicals, one of the major issues that a lot of people have just from a practical perspective or like an aesthetic perspective is the white casting mm. that you can sort of get on your skin. So for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, when you put on like say like a product that's got like a zinc in it, when you put it on the skin, it leaves like a ghosting, like a white sort of ghosting afterwards. Have you, I mean, what do you, in terms of avoiding that or things you can do to counteract that or are there any really good physicals that make that less of an issue? So in general, if the zinc oxide particles are smaller, then they become more transparent to like visible light. So in other words, they give less of the white cast, but they still have that high UV protection. So generally, if you go for a nano product, then you end up with less of that white cast. Um, the problem with nano products is some people are worried about the safety. The, the TGA has actually got an really nice article on their website, which is basically a review with tons of references, um, which shows that, yeah, they're safe. Just maybe avoid broken skin. Um, don't inhale them. <laughs> uh, if you have a spray sunscreen, <laughs> yeah. um, try not to inhale that. Um, the problem though is even if it's nano, the particles tend to cluster together. And then once they cluster, they're no longer, they're bigger now. They're no yeah. longer nano. And so you still end up with a white cast. Um, yeah. So I think if you're avoiding that, Look, try to look for a nano sunscreen and maybe just look at reviews to see if it does do a lot of clumping and other people have seen the white cast. The other thing is if you get a tinted sunscreen, because it's got the extra like flesh colored tint, then that covers up the white cast. Um, alternatively, put um, foundation on top of that or a tinted moisturizer on top of the sunscreen. Um, in terms of brands, um, one that I like is Sunsense. Sunsense tends to have less white cast. Um, another brand that I really love that's come out more recently with a zinc sunscreen is um, Ultraviolet. They're like a, they're a very Instagram friendly brand. They have really nice branding. Um, their one is tinted and the tint seems to work well for a lot of people, which is quite unusual because usually with tinted sunscreens, it'll be one particular colour. Mm. And if you're not that one particular colour, then you look yeah. weird. Um, but this one seems to be, yeah, work pretty well. Are those ones you use then yourself? Yes. <laughs> okay. Everyone will be screaming saying, what does she use? Ask her. <laughs> yeah. I actually usually use a chemical sunscreen um, right. because it's just so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Like zinc oxide, you don't really get good UV protection until you have about 15 to 20% of that in a product. And that just means like, up to one fifth of your product is ground up rock, which I mean, texture wise, it's just not going to be that great. Right. Just to carry on the same vein of, um, you know, toxic and nasties and clean and organic and all those things that you mentioned, what what do we mean by toxic or, or, or is that really a thing? Like you said, it's normally related to dose of anything, mm -hmm. but in when it comes to skincare and cosmetic, are there any sort of good examples of things that were dangerous in the past and now we've cleaned up and, and, and that's sort of the way we're going or are there still things that are sort of questionable that you would worry about? Um, honestly, not that much is all that questionable. I think a lot of the scarier things have been taken out. So there is this thing where the EU has banned, um, I think, 1,300 ingredients, but the FDA has only banned 11. This is like a common wow. thing on social media um, mm. where people are saying, well, then you're using all these toxins in the US um, that you don't find in EU products. But in reality, most of the 1,300 are things that you would never find in cosmetics. So I think they've banned like jet fuel. They've banned <laughs> radioactive, like uranium. Um, yeah. yeah, that's probably a good one. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't think these were ever in products. I think, I believe the history behind this was they 
um, the EU just asked a whole bunch of people, what what do you want to see on this list? And they just put everything on. Right. Um, right. So yeah, in terms of things that have been taken out, over the years, I think there's been a lot of changes in the purity of ingredients that have been allowed. Um, so things like mineral oil, there's been, there are different grades of that and only the, um, the most purified grades are allowed in cosmetics. Um, but yeah, I think these days, most things, it's just, they started taking out things that are like, the evidence isn't quite there, but there are good alternatives. So they've just decided to cut down on particular things. Um, every year the EU takes out a few extra things or puts extra limits on things. So um, mm. there's been lots of small changes, but I think largely for a lot of ingredients, they've been in our products for such a long time. If there was an effect, we should have probably seen it. And we just haven't really seen any strong links. Mm. Yeah. With all the thousands of different products that are out there and you've got cleansers and toners and like millions of different moisturizers for every conceivable skin type under the sun, what are the most basic products that people need to get right? Like if you had to say to someone, you know, you can have three to four products in your shelf, what would they be? I think in Australia, the top one is sunscreen. Um, I think even outside Australia, if you want, if you care about anti-aging, then you should be using sunscreen. Um, If you're using a sunscreen, then you have to get it off. So then it'll be a cleanser. And then if your skin is dry, then a moisturizer. I think those are the top three. Let's talk about cleansers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so in its basic form, it's something to get rid of grime, dirt and products already on your Mm -hmm. skin and makeup, obviously. What does a cleanser, how does it work and and what's it made of? And, And is it particularly um, abrasive or can it be dangerous or, you know, how would you see a cleanser? So cleansers generally have surfactants in them. Surfactants are ingredients that dissolve both oil and water. So normally when we have oil and water, if you try to just wash an oily plate with water, it doesn't work very well because the oil can't dissolve in the water. And so the surfactants help that oil dissolve. And so on your face, that's oil, dirt, makeup, products, whatever. Um, so it's got cleansers in it. And there are, a, sorry, there's a lot of surfactants in the cleanser and there's a massive range of different surfactants. Um, in general, for the biggest issue with cleansers is that some surfactants tend to be less gentle than others. Mm. Um, over the years, it's improved a lot. There's lots of different things that um, cosmetic chemists have realized that they can do to make cleansers gentler. Um, so, for example, if you mix a bunch of different surfactants, then that tends to make it gentler because the other surfactants keep, like, they keep each other out of your skin. Mm-hmm. Um They also have things like you can add particular um, moisturizing ingredients into the cleanser to sort of protect your skin as it's being cleansed. There's also, um, I think Neutrogena definitely have it. I think a few other brands also have this as well. There are like polymers that they can stick in the cleanser that hold on to the surfactants. And then so less of them, like it's sort of like a... Time release, I guess. Not so really controlling time release. how many touch the skin at the same, at, at one time. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So there's lots of little things that they can do, and I think in general now, if you go into a shop and you buy a cleanser, um, yeah, I mean, these are all things that you can test out on your own skin. Like it should be obvious when you try it. You can feel if it's drying out your skin. Yeah. I've got a confession. <laughs> Up until probably I moved to Australia, I don't think I washed my face. <laughs> well, apart from with soap and water, which is ridiculous, like that's crazy for an aesthetic doctor to say that. But I think a lot of people, 
or guys particularly, they're like, why do I need to do that? I've had a shower. Yeah, that's my boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we'll come on to maybe the stupid men thing yeah. later. We should do an episode just for men's skincare. Yeah. Um, the industry seems to be growing every year. Like there's more and more products. It just seems that there's like this unquenchable desire for more products every year. How do all these companies continue to sort of make money and, and grab market share like with just so many products on the market? I mean, you've had that many different cars on the market you know, I don't know if all of them would be successful. How, why is it? Why is it like that in this industry? I think that's still the case. Not all brands are successful. Some of them flop. Um, it is a pretty saturated market, but I think they also try to invent new product categories as well. Yeah. Um, they just start inventing problems that you need to solve. So I think the latest ones are things like blue light protection from screens and like I think tech neck is like a new thing where apparently yeah. you've looked down too much and now you have a neck wrinkle yeah that is the thing mm. I'm convinced of it yeah I think I think it might be a thing but I think I think it's been around for a while right like people yeah. have been reading newspapers books yeah books, yeah 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 true um but I think yeah marketers like to coin a new thing um and then invent a new product for it I mean a technic, like the products, the skincare products are going to be pretty similar to like any other wrinkles on any other part of your body. But now we have a special neck one that you need to add to your <laughs> range of products. Yeah. It's, it's, um, when you talk about inventing things and, and false claims, I remember many years ago, I won't go into specifics about who and when, cause I don't want to get sued, but um, <laughs> I, I was aware of a company that used to, um, try and, illustrate how great their products were at removing wrinkles and they would send people in to have Botox on one side of their face and then claim wow. that that is what their product Wow. Did. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. This is going back many years. That's but definitely illegal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We have to tell me about that off air, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. They're the lengths that some companies will go to mm. to sort of try and... You see them on sometimes on TV, you know, you'll turn on an infomercial and you'll see like this cream and in five minutes yeah. all the wrinkles are gone. Have you seen those things? Yeah. yeah. How does that actually work? I mean, is it, it's obviously not trick photography. Well, but Michelle will know. I, I'm pretty sure they work, but it seems like what they're doing is they're just hugely hydrating the top mm. layer of the skin. It's almost like a super, I don't know, hyaluronic acid or, or similar. So you must have seen those old people mm. where they, they do one side of their face and suddenly like they look like they've had a... A facelift. Yeah. Not just a facelift, but even their under eye sort of shadows have gone. And But it only lasts for about three hours or something. Yeah, I think one of it is the fact it's hugely hydrating. I think for the ad, they probably wash the face first and then clean it and then it dries out extra. So you see a bigger contrast. Mm. There are also some that have polymers in them that form a film and that film sort of like, it's almost like sticky tape. It just kind of flattens it out. And then yeah, after three hours, that effect wears down and it droops again. Be great to use in my clinic though, to say, this is what you could look like <laughs> before, you know, after your filler. So if you like that result, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's actually a genius... Marketing. There you go. <laughs> I, I want 10% commission. I, think. <laughs> okay. um, I wanted to ask you, so I was in Priceline yesterday with my wife and I don't know too much about the range, the ordinary, but I, I came across it and I was like, wow, these ingredients look pretty good, mm. high concentration, some of them, and it was cheap as chips. So I guess my question is price versus efficacy. Is that necessarily correlated or not? To an extent it is. So I believe the way that The Ordinary has kept everything so cheap is that they don't really do much formula 
formulating and they don't do that much testing of their products. So they pretty much just go, all right, dump in 5% of this, dump in, and then we'll just put other things for the rest and then we'll sell that. Right. Um, I think that's their approach, but they are like proper, really, really bottom, cheapest thing you can possibly get. I can't believe the prices. Yeah. So you don't have that testing. And I think that's sort of, that's reflected in the reviews that you see of The Ordinary. Like some people love it. Pretty Ordinary. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's just really wildly varied. <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some people love it. It works great. And some people it's just like this burned my face. Oh, wow. That sort of thing. So I think, yeah, without that sort of testing, you end up with just a really scattergun sort of result. Yeah. With some of the more expensive brands, they do a lot more testing. So they'll finish the product and then they'll send it out to like, I don't know, 100 people and they get them to give their feedback, like whether or not it burned Huge their face. Huge numbers. For a global product, a hundred product. I mean, how many? When you're talking about claims for like scheduled medications, I mean, how much testing would they have to do there? I, I don't know the numbers, Michelle. No, but yeah. it's thousands. thousands. Yeah. yeah, it's thousands and several, uh, you know, parameters and you know follow ups and mm. and then level different phases of the study and yeah, and long term stuff. In depth. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, with cosmetics, it's a lot less than that. Um, there are some brands who do do a lot of testing. Um, so Ultraceuticals, for example, um, yeah. they've actually published peer-reviewed articles and you can see that like, they invite volunteers and do all of this clinical testing. Um, and that would, of course, drive up the price. Um, but yeah, there are, some, there are some brands that definitely just dump in 5% and then still sell it for um, $100, even though they've done zero testing. Mm. <laughs> so what do you feel about the argument of medical grade inverted commas skincare versus over the counter skincare. Like, do you have to use medical grade skincare, which obviously tends to be more expensive and normally available only from, you know, doctors and clinics? Um, short answer, no. <laughs> so I think clinical brands like Ultraceuticals, they tend to do a bit more testing of their products, but that's not always the case. There's definitely medical grade brands out there who do very little testing. Um, They often claim that they have a lot more innovation behind their product or they use like um, nicer ingredients. That's not always the case. Again, like these ingredients and these innovations are available to any brand. Um, There's no regulatory difference between medical grade and over-the-counter skincare. Um, I think... Again, it just really comes down to the product. So there are brands, drugstore brands that do tons of testing. Like I said, um, Procter & Gamble, Mm -hmm. they have a giant innovation center. They do tons of testing and they sell Olay, which is in every Woolworths. Um, So yeah, I think it's still completely brand dependent. Um, If you find a good medical grade brand, then maybe stick to that. If you find a good over-the-counter brand, then stick to that. Like it's whatever works well for your skin and your budget. Yeah. You sort of mentioned um, testing on your skin. And Mm. I know that might sound like a really stupid, obvious question, but how would you go about testing that? Do you like find a small patch like on your skin somewhere that's inconspicuous on your arm or do you want to, do you need to use it on the area that you're intending to, sorry, do you need to test it on the area that you're using to put it on? Um, I think if you're allergic to ingredients or if you're super sensitive, then testing it like in the crook of your elbow might be helpful. But I think for most people, unless you are that sensitive, you do have to try it on your face. Um, In terms of like working out if a product actually works based on that, I think a lot of it comes down to observing your own skin and trying to work out, um, like understand what it's doing. So what it feels like when it's normal, what it feels like when it's irritated or when it's dry or 
oily. Um, one thing that I like to do if I'm really not sure about a product is I put it on half my face. So then I oh, use wow. the other half as the control. <laughs> yeah. So you can actually see the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah so. so if you look like that character from Batman, <laughs> wasn't it, wasn't it Two-Face? Was that the next? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what want to notice about uh, people, you know, even patients, they'll they'll you know grab a new cream, buy a new cream, they'll use it for a day, and they'll go, oh, this one's awesome, it's really working, <laughs> and you're like, uh, that's just not the way it works. Like you're going to need to do at least a month of this because the skin cycles like twenty eight mm. days, and I don't know. I just think it's feel it's so subjective and orientated towards the brand and and liking the feel and the smell of it rather mm. than the efficacy. Yeah. And that is why I think there are so many brands on the market. It just seems to sort of invoke this emotion of I like it <laughs> rather than actually judging it and what it's doing. Yeah, so one of the things that cosmetic chemists are taught is um, when you're making a cream, you put in you put in the things that work long term, but you also have to put in something that works short term because otherwise people will stop using it before the long term things have time to kick in. Mm. And so the people like if you don't put those in, then people will just assume it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I think there is an an aspect of that, like you have to do that for marketing. Um, yeah, with long-term effects, I think the safest thing to do as a consumer is probably look for before and afters um, from the brand because all clinical tests, like whatever clinical um, info they're allowed to give you. Um, because without that, yeah, it is kind of a bit of a crapshoot. Yeah, we did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Ruan Burrell. Oh, She's yes. a, a lawyer and we were talking about before and afters and, and the slippery slope mm. that even those yeah. can sort mm. of um, bring about. So you just want to be careful, particularly when it's, you know, sponsored by a brand. Mm. Um, so you said the most important things were like your sunscreen, uh, cleanser, moisturiser. What about things like your vitamin A's, like niacinamide, vitamin C? Where do, you, where do your thoughts on those and where do they sort of fit into, you know, priority list of products? I think after those three, um, then it comes down to what you want. Like mm -hmm. if you want to change your skin in a particular way, if you want to deal with pigmentation or wrinkles or whatever. Um, since we're on an aesthetics podcast, I'm assuming yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next step after that, I think, would probably be vitamin A, um, yeah. some sort of retinoid product because, yeah, we have um, prescription versions of those where they've been actually been tested to a higher standard, to a drug standard rather than cosmetics. Um I mean, my background is medicinal chemistry, so I always say if there's a drug version, then go for that. Um, if your skin can handle it, if it can't tolerate it, then maybe go to the next step down. So with vitamin A, obviously tretinoin um, is probably the biggest one. And then retinol is probably the cosmetic version of that. Um, and then, yeah. Um, after that, I would probably say vitamin C mm -hmm. is the next one with the with a lot of evidence, um, also glycolic acid, um, like alpha hydroxy acids, beta hydroxy acid as well. Um, niacinamide is a really good one because it does a lot of stuff and it's not irritating. So you can, most people can just slap on as much as they like and it'll probably be fine. Um, yeah, I think those are like the four categories that have the most evidence. Okay. So we understand what, what sunscreen does and cleanses. So what does what does vitamin A do? What does vitamin C do? And what does well, niacinamide do? Mm. Just like, yeah. not in detail, but just, <laughs> just high level. What, what are they doing in the skin? Yeah, so um, vitamin A ingredients, they can increase collagen. Yeah. Um, they can decrease pigmentation. They kind of do like, they tackle all the things that people usually complain about. Um 
So um, acne as well, um, they can help with that. So yeah, vitamin A is pretty much, it hits everything. Um, like a cure-all, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually one of the few things that can get into skin and change it in terms of like collagen and stuff like that. Um, vitamin C is mostly an antioxidant. So it mops up free radicals in the skin. Free radicals are really reactive substances that um, they're generated from things like UV. They're generated in like normal bodily processes as well. And they're reactive enough that they can smash into things that um, like you want to keep in your skin, like DNA um, and cell structures and stuff. So vitamin C kind of comes in and mops that up. On top of that, um, vitamin C seems to be able to increase collagen as well, um, maybe indirectly just by mopping up the free radicals. Um, it also can decrease pigmentation. In Japan, it's actually regulated as a pigment um, reducing quasi drug, which Ooh. is like their way of trying to deal with this like drug versus cosmetic mm-hmm. um, thing. Um, niacinamide, yeah, niacinamide does a bit of everything. So it can decrease pigmentation. Um, it can actually help restore the skin barrier as well. So it helps with, um, the skin's production of different lipids. Um, it seems to decrease redness, um, sallowness. Yeah. Giant list of things as well. With vitamin C though, Mm. one of the things it is quite unstable. Yes. And it can sort of become ineffective. Mm. So how should you be buying it? Because I know you can get it in powders or creams or you like, what's the best way to try and find something that's going to be efficacious? Efficacious? That's not a word. I just made a word up. (laughs) Efficacious. Efficacious. That's what I meant. Yes. Um, So probably the best tested vitamin C product out there is SkinCeuticals. Um, So SkinCeuticals have a patient on their particular formulation. So if you want something that is definitely, almost definitely going to work, uh, the closest to definite you can get in cosmetics is probably SkinCeuticals C Ferulic. Um, Unfortunately, I believe it is $120 for a tiny bottle that lasts, I can't remember if it was three or six months. It will last about three to four months and you want to do about five drops on your hand. So actually, when you drop it out, it lasts ages because mm. I've got it at home. Oh. It does last <laughs> ages. And because it's oily, it literally they, those five drops will go over your whole face. A lot of people I've found tend to use, you know, their more expensive products like a moisturizer and they just, you know, they use too much. So yeah, five drops for the whole face. Yeah. If you can't afford that one, um, <laughs> there are some alternatives, but they're not because SkinCeuticals has that patent, um, I guess if you can find one where they haven't been sued yet, then <laughs> maybe yeah. that'll be your best bet. Um, but yeah, a lot of the other formulations, they'll have a pH that's like a lot lower so to avoid that patent. And so um, you end up with more irritation. Um, yeah, powder. I really don't like powders because it's so hard to measure out the right amount. And yeah. most people measure out too much, which burns your face. Um, yeah. So going back yeah. to your comment about mm. skin sorry, skin suiticals, that mm. that's why I love the science and, and that's you know where people like you come in because you can talk about, well, it's got this percentage of vitamin C and ferulic and so on. It's at this pH, which means it's less irritant and it's going to absorb more or whatever the science may be. And so rather than just sort of people going out buying stuff willy-nilly and kind of guessing, you've got the data, you've got the paper. And you can say, yes, in this bottle, it's going to do the job. So that, that, that's where I think the science behind skincare is really important versus just people not understanding that. So that's where, you know, I think your blog's amazing because you actually go into the science and break it down so people actually have some sort of, you know, some basic sort understanding of, of it. Some sort of footing, yeah. Yeah. I think there is still so much guesswork though, just because, yeah, 
um, companies can't show all the data or don't want to show all the data. But yeah, it definitely does give you like there are little pockets of certainty you can find in this like murky minefield. Mm. But for example, if someone listening to this who knows nothing mm. about skincare said, oh, they said vitamin C, I'm going to get vitamin C, mm. and they go and get one that's got 2%, it's never going to work. Mm. And and so, you know, I think you have to go into it in a bit more detail than just sort of, you know, superficial yeah. level. <laughs> so what are the most common skincare complaints that you sort of come across or, the, or that you deal with or I guess, you know, your, your audience sort of talk to you about? Like things they want to fix yeah. with their face, Correct. I guess. <laughs> yep. um, I think the biggest ones are probably the same as for aesthetics, um, wrinkles, pigmentation, um, sometimes like acne as well, um, or just pimples and clogged pores in general, even if it's not um, to the same extent as acne. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize the limits of skincare though. I think mm. people think they can completely erase their wrinkles with skincare, whereas maybe they'd be better off like with a proper aesthetic procedure. Exactly. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of people are are still trying to deal with the same issues. Yeah. Acne is a difficult one, right? Because it Mm. can be so multifactorial. Yeah. Could be hormonal, could be just lifestyle, could be Mm. dietary, Mm. could be some medical condition Mm. going on. What's your advice to people that are dealing with acne? Because it can be quite a debilitating issue for people. It can be quite this vicious cycle where you start off with an issue and then you try and cover it and then you Mm. get more clogged pores and it just becomes worse and worse. It's hard to sort of sometimes break that cycle. I think with acne, um, it really depends on people's budgets as well, I think. Um, I think the, well, the way I would personally approach it, um, it really depends on severity. So if it's really severe, I think always just see a doctor, Mm -hmm. um, see a dermatologist. They have more, they have more tools to deal with, um, what's going on. Um, and they can recommend things like laser, um, Roaccutane, whatever. Um, I think if it's milder, then maybe try the more, um, the more evidence-based over-the-counter products. So things like benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, um, maybe go to a doctor and ask for or talk to them about whether or not they're suitable for tretinoin, um, like the vitamin A. Um, and then if that still doesn't work and or if it doesn't reduce it to an extent that they're happy with, then see a doctor. What do you... Or, or how do you recommend that people track their skin? I think that's a term. Mm. Like let's say you start a new product, whatever it is, or a new regime, you're listening to this today and you start yourself on a few things. How should people objectively judge if things are working rather than subjectively going, hmm, <laughs> I, I think it is. I think um, I think it's important to write down what you're using because I think that's probably the main one. Everyone forgets little things about what they're using. Um, the other thing is like we have smartphones now. So if you find a place with consistent lighting, maybe at night, 7 p.m. in the bathroom with one specific light, then just take photos from the same angle. That's a good idea. Yeah. 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 Um, in terms of marketing, what are the most common terms or things that people should look out for when they're looking at a product or, you know, they see an ad on TV or in, on, on Instagram or wherever? Um, so there are so many marketing terms that are so sneaky and just don't mean very much. So I think um, dermatologist approved is always a shifty one. Um, one dermatologist, Does that mean paid? <laughs> well, one dermatologist told me that um, 
what they what happened at a com- like in a meeting was um, they passed out like ten pieces of paper and they were like, "Would you recommend this cleanser or would you recommend like vinegar or something? Something like that no one would recommend." <laughs> no. And obviously they all tipped the cleanser, and so that was dermatologist approved. <laughs> would you rather have the cleanser or hydrochloric acid? Your <laughs> I reckon I know who told you that. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> leading, wow. qu- leading questions. Yeah. What about you know like obviously most people are used to looking at the ingredients in their food mm. now, and we, you know most people. Come yeah. A little bit more savvy, the more I guess ingredients that you don't recognize, the more likely it is mm. to not be great for you. Is there any simple way of reading the back of a you know a, a skincare product, or is it basically going to be all chemicals that we wouldn't understand anyway? I think, yeah, with food, it's a bit different because with food, the more processed a product is, generally, um, the less great it is for you. Although, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to cut them out, it's probably just best to limit them and eat more whole foods with skincare it's a lot different because skincare products, they're kind of meant to last for as long as possible. Um, if they start going off too early, then that's not good. And to keep them preserved, you have to use synthetic chemicals that we probably won't recognize. Yeah. Um, unlike food where you can keep it in the fridge and eat it after three days, skincare has to last for months. Mm. Um, so yeah, there isn't really like an easy looking at the ingredients list, a lot of it is like learning particular ingredients. One rule of thumb that I like if your skin is sensitive is to look for a shorter ingredients list because then there's just less stuff that your skin can react to. Mm. Um, But aside from that, I think it's more looking for the ingredients that you want rather than looking for ingredients you don't want. Do they still have to follow sort of, you know, the the most proportionate to least proportionate? Does it work like that? Yeah, it does. So the ingredient at the top will be the highest concentration and then it goes down until 1%. Then below 1% in Australia, at least, it can be in any order. Um, It's hard to work out where the 1% line is. Um, There are some things you can figure out, but also some ingredients are fine at less than 1%. So vitamin A ingredients, a lot of the time, um, you don't need more than 1%. So in general, yeah, you want the ingredients that you like nearer to the top of the list. But sometimes if you know that it works at a lower concentration, then it can be lower. Um, Mm. One useful thing is to like ask the brand and see if they'll tell you. Um, Sometimes (laughs) they do. A lot of them are getting more open about it. Some of them will even put it on the bottle like the ordinary. I think the ordinary actually really helped with that because now other brands realize that it is actually a good marketing strategy to let your consumers know that your product is effective. I was going to ask, so so do they have to list, let's say, the concentration of, you know, vitamin C or not? No. Right, okay. (laughs) Because it would seem... If, if you're sort of happy with your efficacy, you're going to put it on there. And if you're mm. not, you're not. Yeah. The <laughs> other thing is like, even if they put it on there, it could be degraded by the time you get it. Yeah. Um, especially with things like vitamin A and vitamin C, where it is less stable. Um, there was a study that found that a lot of um, popular vitamin A products actually degrade within six months um, to less than half. So even if it does say 1%, by the time it gets to you, maybe it's not 1% anymore. Yeah. Right. Now, when it comes to when to apply these products, obviously sunscreen's obvious, cleanser's obvious. We more... say it's obvious, well, <laughs> but some people put yeah. it straight on before they jump in the pool Yeah, and then it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you, <laughs> like the timing. When should people being apl- should be applying these different products? Morning, night, during like, let's go through it. <laughs> so sunscreen, uh, when the sun is out. Yes. <laughs> I've actually been asked this a few times, like, do I need to apply sunscreen at night? Really? Yeah, I think... It's the marketing, I think. Well, right. some people wear sunglasses at night. I mean, it yeah. makes sense, right? 
<laughs> I think some of the fear is um, the blue screen marketing. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff about how blue light from screens might be aging you. I think it started around the start of lockdown. Yeah. Um, marketing, of course. Um, yeah, so blue light from screens, there's not enough blue light in there. And even if there was, sunscreens don't actually protect against blue light. If it did, we would sunscreen wouldn't be white. It would be like brownish. Um, yeah. Good knowledge. I so, like that. Yeah. yeah. Is Apply that because it's infrared? Is that because it's an infrared sort of spectrum um, or not? It's because it reflects red. Right, um, okay. Oh, sorry. Well, light, blue light will be absorbed by things that are red. Right. No, orangey. All the way around. Orangey. Yes. Um, so you'd need a foundation thing. actually works quite well for blue light, um, yeah. but there's not enough from screens. Like it's so tiny compared to sunlight or even like overhead lights. Yeah, um, it's just not really an issue um, with sunscreen. Um, like uh, like we said earlier, um, you want to apply it well before you go into the pool. Um, so sunscreen takes a little bit of time to form a film. And so if you look on the back of the sunscreen packet, usually it says apply 15 minutes before you go outside. Um, it's not really because it needs 15 minutes to work against the sun. It's 15 minutes to get a film that doesn't budge off when you start like putting on clothes and whatever. Right. Um, with cleanser, um, apply it when you want to wash stuff off your face. So usually at the end of the <laughs> yeah. day, maybe in the morning as well, if you want to yeah. wash gunk off your face. Yeah. But um, this mm. isn't a silly question. Would you, I, I think some cleansers or m most cleansers, they'll say, wash your face and leave it on for about a minute and then wash it off. Is that just sort of, you know, helping all that oil and, and the um, surfactants kind of mix or? Not really. Um, so surfactants move pretty slowly. So um, it's a lot more efficient if you actually get your fingers in there and move Scrub. it around. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think if there's active ingredients in the cleanser, then maybe leave it on so that they can soak in. But the surfactants themselves don't need like tons of time. Okay. Uh, what was the other one? Well, we asked vitamin A, the vitamin mm. C, the niacinamide. Um, generally, the... Like if you put it on clean skin, then yep. it absorbs better. Um, so yeah, usually the order is cleanser, clean your skin, then apply the ingredient, like the products that have active ingredients, usually like serums and toners and stuff like that, and then moisturizer. Right. And you'd normally put your vitamin A on at night yep. and the, the, the C's and the B's normally in the daytime. Yeah. I think the safest thing is always look on the back of the packet because normally yeah. it says um, some ingredients do degrade when you go into the sun, usually vitamin A. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, just follow the instructions. It's yeah. usually the safest. We should probably flag, we're not giving medical advice no. here. No. <laughs> Always speak to your practitioner, your doctor, your derm, whoever's giving you the product. Jake's studying law at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also vitamin A, can, uh, depending on how often you use it, your skin type and what like what version of it is, can make you photosensitive as well. So that's mm. something that people should be aware of if they're not already, right? Yeah. There are um, also alpha hydroxy acids. Right. in that category too. Does your own skincare regime do anything completely different to what the things that we've covered? Do you use any other ingredients? Not really. Yeah, my I actually use very few products compared to a lot of people who I talk to. Um, I think people just assume because I'm into skincare, I use like 15 products at night. I actually only use like cleanser, one like one product with active ingredients maybe moisturizer in winter and then that's it. Do you feel if you go and do a YouTube video with like a zit on your face that you're going to be judged for not knowing what you're talking about? Definitely. And, and you might sort of <laughs> not film that day. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's definitely a bit of that. Um, my skin isn't too bad. I do get like a pimple around like once a month, yeah. um, just hormonal, which skincare can't deal with. Um, and I just, I, it 
isn't a big enough issue for me to actually go like seek help for it, which um, I think is also something that a lot of people don't realize, like you don't have to fix everything on your skin if you're fine with it. Yeah. Um, like a lot of people like having some wrinkles. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely that sort of judgment. Um, I have a few friends. I actually have a dermatologist friend, um, Angelie Marto, who is, um, I don't know if you know she's her. She's in the UK. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah. Um, she's struggled with acne her whole life. And being a dermatologist, she actually specializes in acne. She has all the things available. And because acne is just such a tricky thing to deal with, um, she does still get acne. And yeah, she gets a lot of mean comments about it. Oh, which that's terrible. is yeah, which just doesn't reflect the scientific yeah. reality. Well, it can be led by different things. I mean, I know people that have had you know issues with their skin in, in respect of acne, and it could be dietary related. There could be something mm. happening with their liver. They might be having too much fat in their diet. Mm. All these sorts of things. Mm. Or just impact. genetics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Stress. Anything. Mm. Yeah, it's not just as simple as oh, you know, you don't clean your face properly, mm. therefore you've got acne. Yeah. Especially when sort of adult acne sort of pops out of nowhere. It, it's clearly not. You know, your diet's probably been the same your whole life or probably. So it's probably more likely hormonal stress mm. uh, combination. Uh, and sometimes you never get the answer. So that's really harsh. The people giving dermatologists a hard time. Yeah. When mm. she's obviously trying to help thousands yeah. of people. Yeah. So what are the most controversial skincare ingredients? Um, in terms of um, safety or in terms of whether or not they work? Well, both. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in terms of safety, I think a lot of preservatives have had um, – people are suspicious of them because, yeah, they tend, they're always synthetic because natural things don't preserve things very well. Um, they're also quite um, – they tend to be irritating and allergenic because, yeah, if you have things that kill bacteria and fungi, then a lot of the time they also aren't very nice to you on your skin. But you need them because otherwise – you, you end up with bacteria and fungi in your product and applying that on your skin is also not great. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about preservatives, but the ones that are, actually have the most controversy around them are also the ones that have been tested the most. And I think that's always an issue because the more you look for issues, the more data you have. Yeah. And you need to keep that in perspective when analysing the data. But choose someone who hasn't really looked into it. It just looks like there's all this controversy around particular ingredients when it's, yeah, more of a, you, we were looking for that. <laughs> mm. I guess one of the controversies I remember when I was growing up was animal testing. Mm. And, and presumably that doesn't happen at all anymore, or very rarely. Very rarely, yeah. So what what was so controversial or, or bad in, in the products that they then removed to not need well, to do that? How do you... How do you test skincare on a rat? Uh, you <laughs> say, uh, I don't know, you've seen a rat with lipstick? <laughs> no, I don't know. Just, that was just a stupid question. I was just imagining rubbing moisturiser into the... <laughs> I've no idea. Um, so a lot of it was like basic safety testing. So things like rubbing it into their eyes for like eye irritation. <laughs> oh my God, um, that would irritate anyone's eye even if it wasn't. Yeah. I think there's like, um, there are a bunch of things where they like put the products in like a little beaker and then sat the rat in it and looked for skin irritation. Right. Um, so a lot Gosh. of these now have been replaced with um, animal-free testing methods. Some of them are completely animal-free, like they don't even use animal cells and they just use models. Um, and a lot of them are now done on humans as well. So, I mean, we don't sit the human in a vat of the product, yeah. but um, you get them to apply it repeatedly on skin and then look for redness and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but animal testing is actually very rare now. Um, 
it's been replaced by so many other things. And there's so many ingredients now that we have tons of data on from the past. We don't need to retest them. There is like, there are little things like in China, there used to be a law where they could take any product off the shelf and test it on animals. And so some people counted that as animal testing, even though it's just like, well, if the government is suspicious, they might test your product mm. on an animal. I think China is actually reforming that now. It's actually interesting because a lot of the big companies were the ones who actually pressured China to change, even though they were being boycotted by people who were against animal testing. Um, but yeah, animal testing is incredibly rare now. That's good. Mm. Except for Botox. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. Oh, Botox, the brand, do not test on animals. They, they've got their own, um, forget the name of it, it's like an immune immunoassay. Excellent. And there are no animals, and that's been the case for at least five or six years. Nice. So is it possible to overdo skincare? Like you've, you've obviously got your two ends of the spectrum, right? You've mm. got people that don't do anything and they should, and then you've got people that maybe get a bit OCD about it and they're just forever buying new products and mm. just... Because there's only so much your skin can take, right? Yeah. Before it stops absorbing or starts becoming Definitely. counterproductive. I think people who start getting into skincare often fall into that trap where they're mm. doing way too much. Um, and there's so many products now with lots of active ingredients in them. There's a big irritation issue. Um, from talking to a number of dermatologists, they've been saying they've seen a big uptick in people who are having like contact dermatitis from using too many products. And when they ask them which products they use, they're using way too many. Mm. Or too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how would you go about uh, someone listening to this and they, they, they've never used any skincare in their life, how would they go about designing and sensibly starting skincare on themselves? Um, I'd probably recommend starting with a sunscreen um, and then maybe adding a, mo a cleanser, moisturizer, and then moving on to actives. Um, I think the safest rule of thumb is to introduce products um, one at a time. Um, one and space it out like one every two weeks. I think it's really tempting when people go and buy all their products, they put them all on their face the first <laughs> night. Um, and that, that's really annoying because then you can't tell which one is doing what. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Especially that sun cream at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and vi I think vitamin A or, or retinol is a classic one where people overdo it really quickly and probably use too much. They get red, flaky itchy and say this is not working for me this I'm allergic is, to it I'm allergic mm. to it and yet you know as we know you need to sort of sensitize yourself and build up mm. slowly maybe just twice a week and three times a week until you're using it every day mm. so that's a classic one I hear from patients mm. a lot actually um yeah so yeah so sun cream moisturizer cleanser mm -hmm. and then start adding in some simple actives yeah. under the advice of a, a skincare therapist or a doctor dermatologist mm. yeah so skincare for men, we sort of touched mm -hmm. on it at the beginning and I think that... Um, Stupid people. Stu yeah. Well, <laughs> I think men are generally a lot less compliant. They care a little bit less about that than, than women do generally. I'm, I'm generalising. Um, is skincare different for men? Like do they have different requirements? I know men's skin tends to be a little bit thicker, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more resilient. But in terms of what they should be doing. What are your thoughts and, and sort of recommendations? Um, it's pretty much the same apart from beard hair. Um, so with beard hair, sometimes it gets stuck under the skin and mm -hmm. then you might need to use more of a scrub to free those hairs. Um, but apart from that, it's pretty much the same. Even though men have thicker skin, the actual products they use are going to be the same. Yeah, and highly recommend getting laser done for beards yeah. mm -hmm. or the underside of the beard where I used to get 
crap load of ingrowings and now I don't get any mm. having had my laser done at David's Clinic. There you go. Nice, nice <laughs> plug. There you go. <laughs> so why is it that you think men are just so non-compliant? Why is it that they just care so much less about it than women do? Have you got any insights? Yeah, I think it's, they, most men care less, but I think the men who are into skincare, like end up caring a lot more and trying to be a lot more um, like science-based than like is necessary. Um, And I think it's just because skincare is seen as such a female thing. And so they either like feel like it's a little bit emasculating using skincare or because they're trying they want to use it, but they don't want to feel emasculated. They go way too far the other end and just mm-hmm. feel, yeah, they just demand um, certainty that isn't possible. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the patients that I see, they want clean skin, healthy skin, but mm. they're less fussy about the minutiae. Like, mm. you know, women want porcelain skin and zero pigmentation and zero acne. Whereas guys, I actually think, you know, even from an injectables perspective, can get away with looking slightly rugged, but... Mm healthy whereas they're not looking for that pristine sort of mm. look so yeah I, I think men tend to be less fussy but do care about their skin from from my perspective are you seeing are you seeing more of you know the men coming into the market and asking questions and i guess in your platforms are you seeing that trend yeah definitely um i think obviously i think a l- there's a lot more gay men who are asking questions first, yep. I think, because, yeah, there isn't as much of a um, barrier. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely a lot more straight men as well. Um, and also there's, like, a lot more brands that are marketing towards men as well. Um, so my boyfriend was actually telling me, like, because he's he's really supportive. He likes every post of mine. It's very sweet. But then it's <laughs> messing with the algorithm for him. So now he gets all these, like, male skincare ads. Um, and, yeah, they're ads I never see because of how the algorithm works um but yeah there's tons of brands again it's a pretty saturated market people are trying to carve a niche where maybe there isn't a niche well you see it all the time you know these ads saying you know specifically designed for men is that just Mm. all crap pretty much apart from maybe a beard like beard products yeah Yeah. and maybe not that i recommend that people buy fragrance stuff but it might smell a bit more manly yeah that's true rather than being floral or whatever it's in a black or gray bottle (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) or Green. Apparently green is manlier than blue, which was surprising oh, oh, to me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So this was I think it was Neutrogena's um market testing. They found it was green. Mm. There you go. As in the actual cream rather than the branding. Uh, oh no, the branding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> green, green, cream would I don't know. Yeah, well I, I read a little bit. Really to be honest. A bit of a tangent that um pink used to be a masculine colour because it was a deviation of red which was mm. what all the emperors used to wear and that blue used to be a female colour. And then at some stage it switched around. <laughs> right. Very, very weird. Who, who are your listeners or your engagers, your followers? Who, who like? Do you know what their background is? So demographically, um, generally it, my biggest demographic is 25 to 35-year-old women. Um, my audience is about 90% women, 10% men. Yeah. Most of them are from the US, but I think that's just because the US is like the third biggest country and the biggest English-speaking country. Yeah. Um, I also get a lot of followers from Indonesia because Indonesia is a huge country and um, I have similar skin to um, yeah. Indonesian people and pigment. Um, yeah, I'm like one of the more popular people who have like, I have pigment issues. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Is, is that from your Instagram insights or have you done any more marketing research? Um, this is from Instagram and YouTube insights, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Our insights is very, very similar for the podcast. Yeah. Sort of... I think it's 86% female, similar age bracket, um, and, and a lot in the States as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, we sort of spoke about how long 
these posts take to put up and how much work and effort goes into it. And obviously at some stage this becomes a situation where you have to commercialise it mm. so you can actually sustain an income and, and feed yourself, right? Yeah. And, and you're mm. very upfront about the fact mm. that you have sponsors. How does that, How did you sort of make that transition? I guess because Jake and I are sort of heading down a, mm. a similar path in terms of you want to continue to put out unbiased content and mm. be upfront about what you're doing. How, do you, how did you transition and, and how do you sort of tackle those issues? So I think even very early on, I had relationships with brands in terms of PR, like receiving um, product samples. Um, I've always just been super upfront about it because that's what I would personally want when I was reading a blog. Yeah. Um, so I've always complied with like the strictest regulations that weren't stupid. Um, <laughs> so I think in Germany, there's like a whole bunch of pretty stupid regulations. I believe um, even if they bought the product themselves, they have to call it an unpaid advertisement, which is just right. bizarre. Um, if they feature any product at all that they themselves have purchased. Mm. Um, I feel like that's a bit over the top. So if a brand has given me something um, or if they've paid me, then I always disclose it. And I think, yeah, it's just being upfront and transparent and honest is always the best way to go about things in terms of um, keeping that trust yeah. from your audience. Yeah. In terms of, um, so yeah, after I had, I was doing um, PR, um, using product samples and stuff like that. Um, eventually some brands were like, hey, can can you review a product? Um, like if we send you this, can you review it? Um, I've never said yes to those. I've always been, I've always said like, I'll consider reviewing it, but because you're not paying me, I'm not going to guarantee anything because I don't think that's fair on me. Yeah. Like yeah. the product costs, costs well, it's, $30. It's massive advertisement for them for mm. nothing. Exactly. For, for you. Yeah. Yeah. I would get a product that I probably don't need because I already have so many products. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, and then eventually they were like, can we pay you to talk about it? And that's where I started doing um, yeah. more paid work. Um, in terms of choosing sponsorships at the moment, because I am big enough, generally, if there's a brand I like, they are generally willing to sponsor me or at least send me products, um, which is kind of nice because then I think you can be a lot more selective and you can actually choose. Uh, whereas I think there are some bloggers in a worse situation where they need the money, but they can't necessarily get the sponsorships they want. Yeah. So I think always, I think having a backup has always been good. Like having a day job before yeah. I started have, having this like luxury of choice Yeah. Um, was always good because I could always say no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of choosing which brands to work with, yeah, now I generally have enough um have enough people offering me money that I can choose. Yeah. Um, I still think I try not to make all my content sponsored because I think then it just yeah. gives the appearance of bias, even if it's not actual bias. Yeah. Um, and when I choose a sponsorship, I usually um, my litmus test is if there's someone who cannot buy this product or even if this product is not available in their country, they can't get it anyway, it doesn't suit their skin, will they still get something out of this piece of content? Like, can they still learn something? Can they still have a takeaway? So that's usually my test. Yeah. And are these companies prepared for the fact that your findings or your review may not be favourable? Do they try and curate that or control negative sort of opinions that you might have? Or is it like if they sign up and you've agreed <laughs> to do the review, then it is what it is. You're just going to say exactly what you think. So um, I think companies now, at least the companies I work with, they're a lot more open to my suggestions. Um, I think back in the day, 
it was like brands would be a lot more controlling, but I think now they sort of understand how influencers work and how, yeah, it's having a genuine review is a lot more valuable than having a half part of review. Definitely. so generally, if a company wants me to do something, I'll try it. And if I don't like it, then I say, look, let's walk away from this. Again, it's <laughs> the luxury of choice. Yes. Um, the fact that I have the freedom to do that, do that is amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if there's a product I don't like, usually I give them feedback and I say, is there another product you want me to talk like I, to talk about instead? Usually if it's a brand I like, then there is a product they have that I would be very happy to talk about. And then so we, we just go, okay, let's not talk about that product. Let's talk about this other product. Yeah. And then maybe later on I'll like put out the review of the not so good product. Um, yeah. yeah. I try to be fair though, because I think with skincare products, someone out there, it works for someone out there. That's why it's been released. Like even yeah. if it was just the brand owner, they must have liked it enough to release it. So yeah. I don't think it's, it's difficult, like, it would be quite unfair to just slam it just because it didn't work for me. Like usually I can tell like it would probably work. It doesn't work for me because I have oily skin. Yeah. Um, yeah and so that's I try important to as well. Thing. When we were talking about, you know, studies on three people versus mm. 20,000, mm-hmm. you can only speak from your own experience. Mm. So hopefully people understand that that doesn't necessarily mean it won't work for them or or same on the podcast if we partner with a company to talk about a device we try to make it unbiased we Mm. ask the tricky questions downtime Mm. price all that stuff but at the end of the day that doesn't mean that it doesn't translate into someone else's business Mm. just because it doesn't suit us Yeah. yeah so i think hopefully listeners and your followers you know understand that yeah have you ever um, had a situation where your feedback has then driven a change in a product or they've taken your advice and gone, well, actually, that's some really that's a really good idea. Thank you for that feedback. We're now going to make an adjustment or change. Um, I think so. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of the time, it, you know, it's lost um, to follow up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely been times where I have actually, The Ordinary have been really, really good with that sort of thing. The Ordinary don't do sponsorships, so it's not actually a sponsorship feedback, but um, they've always sent me products and I think I've slammed a couple and they, oh, they're so nice. They were like, they thank me in their email. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, other companies are not so good with that sometimes, but The Ordinary have always been like, we'll take That's on, cool. thank you so much. We've taken on the feedback. Yeah. What else they're a Canadian you? company, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the way it has to go. People are, are wising up. There's people like you out there that are, you know, revealing the the veil of uncertainty and confusion. And I think that brands now recognize that they've got to be upfront. They have mm. to be honest about what they're doing. And sometimes the feedback's not always going to be positive. And mm. I think sometimes even when something has got these positive glowing reviews, like it's almost people don't believe it mm. because it's like, it's just not possible. Yeah. Like this, this world of like over curation to the point where everything looks perfect just doesn't mm. wash with people anymore. Mm. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think people like seeing like some of the things behind it. And I think also just the way a brand responds to feedback mm. is now taken, like people care about that now, not yeah. just how well the products work. And they care a bit more about like the ethics of the company and stuff like that. So yeah, I think having honest reviews actually helps with brands images because they're like, yeah, people know that it's impossible to have a hundred percent glowing reviews. Well, the proof's in the pudding. That's what you're doing with your account and it's massively popular. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and a bit of time. I know it took a bit of time to organise this. I'm sorry I had to cancel <laughs> last right. week. Yeah, these um, things happen. How do people get in touch with you if they've got questions, want to reach out, what's your social media handles and your YouTube channel? 
So my YouTube channel is Lab Muffin Beauty Science. My Instagram is also Lab Muffin Beauty Science. My blog is labmuffin.com. And yeah, just leave a comment. Fantastic. What does the future hold for you? What's next? Um, I... trying to work on my second ebook, but I keep right. on putting it off. what was your first one? What was the title? The first one was actually the Lab Muffin Guide to Basic Skincare, which was cleanse and moisturizer sunscreen, like how to use them, how to pick them. Oh, there we go, um, perfect. Yeah, what you need to look out for um, and some product suggestions as well. Um, I'm trying to work on a second one, which is on actives because I think I think people were asking for that before that, but yeah. I felt like I needed to put out the basic one first. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it, things just take ages. So much do, research. And <laughs> how do people get hold of your ebook? Is it just downloadable off your website? It's or on your my blog? website, yes. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Michelle. See you later. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.